Thank you, Gabe. Appreciate you reading the word. He said it was a privilege to do so, and it is, is it not? To read God's word, to hear God's word together as a church. What a, what a privilege we have in considering the persecuted church that Cassidy prayed for today. Uh, we meeting in a, a public building, partnering with the YMCA. We get to read God's word aloud uh, without the fear of outright blatant persecution. So thank you, brother, for reading. If you haven't already turned to Genesis 6, I want to encourage you to do so uh, and to tie our prayer for the nations in maybe even more. Um, Cassidy said, uh, life is not always butterflies and rainbows. Did you hear him say that? Uh, He probably didn't realize, he wasn't probably trying to tie in the text to that moment, because I hear him say that phrase all the time, you know, saying to his kids or to co-workers, yeah, life is not always butterflies and rainbows, and yet uh, that presses right in to our text. So uh, I don't know about you, but uh, we were driving during some of the spotty storms yesterday, and uh, lo and behold, we saw a rainbow. Did y'all see any? Anybody see a double rainbow? You saw two or a double? Okay, so uh, maybe you saw one, and, uh, and if not yesterday, surely in the past month or two of rain, as we've been preaching through the flood, uh, you have probably seen one. And uh, this morning, we get to press in to consider what, is, what does the rainbow mean? Uh, as a kid, uh, growing up in a Christian home, I knew that it, uh, it was a sign from the Lord that God promised that he uh, would not judge the earth again with a flood. Uh, I learned that in Sunday school. I learned that in Bible stories. And yet when I turned the TV on, uh, I learned that at the end of the rainbow was a a bowl of Lucky Charms and all of the the goodness of gold and things like that. And so, you know, even as a kid, hearing the truth and yet seeing something else on TV were uh, combated with what does this really mean? And it's it's no different as adults. It's no different as adults. Um, If you're not aware, this is uh, Pride Month. uh, a month in which, uh, at least people in, in our country, remember uh, uh, a day, a, a, a day of uh, horrendous torture uh, against the gay community many years ago, a day that should have never happened um, in New York City. Uh, and yet they remember that day, and it, and it shouldn't have happened. It never, never should have happened. Um, But the gay community has come to remember that event this month, every year, and and even more recently have come to uh, symbolize that community with the the pride flag, which are the colors of the rainbow. And so if you don't know any better, you may think that that's what the rainbow represents, that that is the, uh, when you ask someone, what does the rainbow mean to you? That may be something that they would say, that, that this is what that means to me. And, and yet as, as Christians, as followers of Christ, uh, we, we go back to God's word. 
and we have to go back to the truth to consider what, what, is the, what did God mean for this sign? Because as you just heard it read, it was a gift of the Lord, a sign from the Lord himself. Uh, not something for us to reinterpret in our own uh, means, in our own ways for ourselves, but, but it means something. And I think what we're going to even see even more so is, is that not only does the rainbow uh, teach us and, and it taught Noah that God would never again destroy the earth with a flood, um, but it points us forward to an even better sign. Uh, this was a, a sign of a covenant, but it points us forward to an even better covenant, uh, one that was established in Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and so for us, we, we look at the resurrection, and, and I hope uh, that you have already noticed in, uh, in the scriptures and in the f- songs that we have sung, the songs of resurrection and the songs of life that we're going to uh, see in this passage this morning. Genesis chapter 9 is really the, the, the closing ceremony of the entire flood narrative. Next week, we'll look at Genesis 9, 18 through 29, which is really what happens post-flood. But this is kind of the, the closing ceremony, the, the, the final uh, incident in this entire narrative of the flood. And we've talked about the flood, uh, the early stages of that being uh, God's decreation of the earth. Um, the earth was described as being corrupt and having destroyed themselves, and so the Lord was going to uh, give them up to their destruction. And it was as if after God had created the world, he was now allowing the world to be decreated in this flood. And after everything was destroyed, um, the Lord then recreated the the world. Uh, He began to blow his spirit, his breath over those waters like he did in Genesis chapter 1 and the mountain peaks peeked out of the waters, and life began to grow, an olive branch was plucked off those trees, and you began to see God recreating and reestablishing life on the earth while he saved Noah. And we've been talking throughout this entire series of Genesis that, that Genesis 1 through 11 is a story of God's creation, his curse on mankind and the earth for their sin against him. And yet a covenant, a covenant of uh, salvation that we saw first in Genesis 3.15. And here we see this covenant, uh, another covenant being established with Noah here. But we've been describing that, that Genesis, especially 1 through 11, is, is really God's blessing God's blessing in creation, God's blessing in the midst of the curse, God's blessing in the midst of that covenant that he gave in Genesis 3.15 and in in this. And that's no different in Genesis 9 as well, because look at the starting words in Genesis chapter 9, and God blessed, and God blessed. 
He, he blessed Noah. We're going to see God's hand of blessing in several different ways in this passage. And they're noted uh, kind of like the creation was brought forth in Genesis chapter 1. If you remember back to Genesis chapter 1, in each day of creation, it said, And God said, let there be light. And God said, let the waters uh, in the sky and the waters of, uh, below separate. And God said, let earth uh, come to fruition. We see that, and God said, and God said, and God said, and we see that same thing here in chapter 9, and God said, and God said, and God said. Again, God establishing life here on this earth, recreating it, and he blesses. He starts with this blessing, which is what he did with Adam and Eve in the very beginning. He blessed them, and a very similar command as well, and in these commands, in the early stage of Genesis 9, what I want you to note, if you're taking notes, and I encourage you to do so, note this, that God blesses with provision for life. God blesses, in Genesis 9, 1 through 7, with these commands that end up providing for life. And so not only has God saved Noah through the flood uh, in uh, in the story of Genesis 6 through 9, but when the flood is is done and over, he's providing for life. And he blesses Noah and his sons, and he says to them in verse 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? Who did he tell that to earlier in this story of Genesis? He said it to Adam and Eve. This was the first command that when he made man in his image, male and female, he made them, he said to them in that moment, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the the knowledge and the glory and the worship of me, God says. Um, This was important. And, And it was important for Adam and Eve. And unfortunately, they fell into sin. And so then rather than filling the earth with the knowledge and the glory of God, they filled the earth with sin. And so in this restart, in this recreation, God is not telling a sinless Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Now he's telling a sinful Noah and his wife and his sons and his sons' wives to be fruitful and multiply. And that's not just an act of Uh, A physical act of being fruitful and multiplying and having children, though it is that, that there is blessing and having children, uh, that God has commanded it is good and right uh, to have children and to fill your families with children, um, not only through physical procreation, but as we heard in our prayer for the nations, for those whose mothers and fathers have been taking them from disease, persecution, uh, poverty, whatever it may be, to fill our families with uh, children through adoption, to, to have large families, if the Lord would allow to raise children in the Lord, to teach them to fear the Lord, to teach them to worship and honor and glorify the Lord. 
but not just in our, our physical families, but in our spiritual families as well. To invite those who don't know Christ to become spiritual children of the Lord and to worship him and to honor and to glorify him, to be saved by him and to be welcomed in and, and them included in that command to be fruitful and multiply. And this is why when you see the church in Acts after Jesus died and rose from the dead and he went to sit at the right hand of the Father, the church in Acts is described as multiplying, multiplying, multiplying over and over. And not only individuals multiplying, but then it talks about in Acts chapter 9, churches multiplying on top of themselves. This is not only a physical command, but a spiritual one as well. And God has not only saved life through the flood, he's providing for life after the flood. That's one of his blessings, commanding life even for Noah and his sons and their wives to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is what this new world, this unpopulated world needed. And not only that, but he, he provided protection for them. In verse 2, it says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all of the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Even goes beyond that. It says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you green plants, I give you everything. God was had not only saved life through the flood, but was providing for life after the flood. And he does it by putting the fear of man in animals. And putting the fear of man in, in all of God's creation. Again, this goes back to uh, creation in Genesis chapter 1, when God told Adam and Eve uh, that you should have dominion over and subdue the world. And yet, when the fall came about, the fall of mankind, the sin of mankind, not only affected man and woman and their children, it affected all of creation, animal life included, uh, plant life included. The, the, the Bible says that the earth is groaning because of the sinfulness of, of mankind. And, and, and yet, God protects uh, the life that he had saved through the flood and that he is providing for. He protects life as well by putting the fear of man in all animals so that they wouldn't wreak havoc on uh, the life of mankind because God saw so, so much value in the life of mankind even over animal life that he would put the fear of man in animal kind. But and, and he goes even beyond that. Not only did he put the fear of them, but then he gave them as food. And some of you are saying yes and amen you know, to this moment, thinking, had I lived before this moment and green plants been my only food, I would have been lacking. Uh, you wouldn't have wanted to live during Adam and Eve's generations or up to that, but here you see yourself as a Genesis 9 type of person. Thanking and praising the Lord for Genesis 9, verse, uh, what is that? Verse 5, or verse 3. Uh, 
maybe this is when God first allowed uh, mankind to eat animals, or at least made it clear that that was okay. Uh, we're not 100% sure, but nevertheless, after this point, uh, it, was, uh, it was that way, where back in Genesis chapter 1, God made it very clear that he had given, as he reminded us here, again, in this recreation narrative, that in the first creation, in the original creation, God did give them all green plants, all uh, fruit-bearing uh, bushes, uh, fruit-bearing trees for food. God provided for their life in the original creation, and God is, again, providing for life in this recreation. And now he's giving them animals, but he puts a restriction on it. He puts a restriction as a reminder in verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its, what's the word? Life. Again, this, this is God's provision for life. Saving life through the flood, provision for life after the flood. And he gives them this, uh, this ability to eat flesh, but he gives this restriction not to eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. He, he wants people to remember that blood is a sign of life. He wants them to remember this not only in animals as they potentially eat uh, animals, but he wants that to then press them forward to consider human life as well. That not only is animal life found in its flowing uh, blood, so is the life of mankind. And so God goes beyond providing and, and protecting in those ways that in verse 5, he says something similar for mankind. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So if earlier he puts the fear of man into animal, here he's putting the fear of God into man and saying, don't you dare mess with my children. I have made man in my image. And if you attack man like Cain did so long ago, because I've made man in my image, you're essentially attacking me. I see it as an affront on myself and my kingdom. And I'm giving mankind the responsibility uh, of taking punishment into their hands. And if you set out to kill a man, uh, again, we have these stories of earlier in Genesis in, in our mind, Cain and Abel. Lamech uh, in Genesis chapter 4. If you act like that, I'm giving mankind the right, not only the right, the responsibility to uphold life by taking your life from you. This is an important uh, forerunner, if you will. We need to remember, though, this is a forerunner, a precursor to the law. This is uh, 
pressed out into more detail in the Mosaic law, uh, not only on mankind, but animals. If there's an animal that kills another man or woman, that animal is to be, his life is to be taken from them. And so this is uh, pressed out in the Mosaic law that's given later to Israel, but it's, this is given before the law. This is given before the law, and it's really set in creation order, which means this is not some Old Testament law and rule that we need to abolish and get rid of. Uh, this was seen as something that was foundational to God's creation. Mankind was made and created in God's image, and anything that attacks or takes the life of mankind intentionally is to be is to be dealt with is to be dealt with and so we need to uphold this this view of life this this doesn't negate life at all it actually upholds our value of life it upholds god's value of life and again god sees it as an attack uh, on himself interestingly in the new testament we see these um this creation order uh, law being upheld, uh, like I said, we see it even pressed out in more detail in the Mosaic law, and yet even in those moments, there's still grace that is shown, is there not? In the Mosaic law, we see this, um, th that not only for killing man, but there, uh, for adultery, um, for stealing, for so many other kinds, life was to be taken because of breaking certain serious laws that would affect other people's life. And yet there was grace shown even in the Old Testament. We can think of someone like David, who was a murderer and an adulterer, and yet his life wasn't taken. Um, this was something that was to be established by uh, those who were in charge of, uh, of the people, of the population, of the, the government, of Israel in the Old Testament, of other nations. But it's even fulfilled even into the New Testament. Jesus himself would uphold this high standard of life. And yet even Jesus um, showed grace and stood for life. You can think about uh, in John chapter 8, the woman who was caught in the midst of adultery, according to the Old Testament law, uh, she was to be put to death. And yet Jesus says, yet he who has not sinned cast the first stone and, and applies grace in that situation and, and shows how far reaching it is. And, and yet Jesus himself, he came to perfectly fulfill the law. He came to, to live a life that was uh, undeserving of death in any form or fashion. And yet was it not Jesus himself who was killed by man on purpose? He who never shed the blood of another man, but instead took the sins of mankind upon himself. In, in fact, took the, the sin of murder of other men, mankind upon himself and took the punishment for them on the cross. Jesus, Jesus himself did that. 
Paul even upholds this view of life. In fact, I was reminded in our preaching through the book of Acts, uh, Paul in two different places, Acts 25, verse 11, Acts 28, verse 18, he speaks about even being willing to be killed if he was deserving of death. In his mind saying, there are actions that are deserving of death. Even after Christ has died and risen from the dead in this new church age, there are actions that are deserving of death. And Paul said, if I've done one of those things, I'm willing to die for it. If I deserve to die, you can put me to death. But he says that nobody could find anything that he had ever done worthy of death. And so he he appeals to Caesar. He appeals to going to Rome and, and wants to make it there. Even in Romans chapter 13, verse 4 through 5, he says, But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. Speaking of the government. For he is the servant of God. That is the government, is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And so this is important. This is the way that God upholds life. He says, don't you dare take man's life from him. And I think this applies to life in the womb before a child is born, all the way to life uh, at the end of someone's life. That, that we are not to take their life from them. As long as they're living, breathing, that blood is pumping through their bodies, we're not to take that from them. We need to uphold life in this way as best as possible. There are countless ways that our world has done this wrong. Countless ways. Um, that doesn't mean that we're to reject upholding this type of principle. We're not to reject the taking of life because others have uh, taken life uh, necessary. We shouldn't rejoice in it, but we're not to reject it ultimately because this was established in God's creative order, showing how high he views you and I. How high he views your children. How high he views your co-workers. How high he views the people of all nations. How high he views even those who are persecuting the church that we prayed for earlier. God views life so highly. And when we carry out these, uh, these ways, when we view life in the same way that God views life, we are saying to those around us that God cares about them as well. That God cares about their life. Not just their life here on this earth, but ultimately their, their eternal life. But like bookends, like bookends on your shelf holding all of those books that you haven't read, up on the end, we see the same thing in verse 7 that we saw in verse 1. God blessed them in verse 1 by saying to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we see again in verse 7, and you, a reminder 
Again, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. God saw fit to uh, not only save Noah's life and his wife's life and his sons and his sons' wives' lives through the ark in the midst of the flood that destroyed the whole earth, he decided to provide for it by commanding life, by providing uh, food for life, protection uh, from, from animal life there in this post-flood world. But he goes beyond that, and he establishes a covenant. He establishes a covenant. That's what it says in, in verse 8. That's the language that he uses twice, that repetition of that, that phrase, I establish my covenant. Look in verse 8. Again, like Genesis chapter 1, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. Again, verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. And here's the covenant. That never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. I, I was trying to place myself in, in Noah's shoes. I don't know if we wear the same size, but I was trying to do this this week, considering what does this mean to Noah? Uh, what, what is the establishment of a covenant? What does this promise from God mean to Noah? And if, if you can just... Try to put yourself in their situation. They uh, had spent a year on the ark. Rain, I mean, rain after rain after rain, water after water, water after water, death after death after death outside the ark. They come out of the ark, and God begins to say, be fruitful and multiply. I, I've provided you this, that, and the other. I'm protecting you from this, that, and the other. Be fruitful and multiply. And I was imagining like Noah in that moment saying, yeah, but what if, what's to say this won't happen again? I'm going to go and do this, and what happens if it starts raining again? What happens, I mean, do we need to live by the ark just in case we need to run back to the ark and get, get on board? Or if I don't do this well, are you going to bring another one? Like, like, is it up to me to be able to do all of those things in verse 1 through 7, and then you're going to establish this? I, you know, I began to put myself in Noah's shoes, began to consider, what is this? Man, I think this covenant means everything to Noah, everything to him. Because in this covenant, we see, no, it's not based on you doing 1 through 7. It's not based on how good you do 1 through 7. It's not based on you at all. And it's not just for you. You can leave the ark there. You can, you'll can. you probably need it for firewood. You, you know, you're going to probably need that to build some homes. So tear that thing down. It's probably why we can't find it anymore in the mountains of Ararat. Uh, no, you're not going to need it anymore. Uh, you're going to need a, a greater salvation later on, but that's for later. Uh, you're not going to need that anymore. This covenant meant everything 
to Noah and to his people. It was so encouraging. This, this covenant, if we look at the language around it, is one that's unilateral. Did you notice that God was saying, I will establish my covenant. This was one directional. It had nothing to do with Noah. There are some bilateral, uh, two-directional covenants in the Bible. You do this, and I'll do this. Not this one. This one's one-directional, unilateral. God's saying, I will never flood the earth again. I'll never destroy the earth with a flood. It's, it's unilateral. It's unconditional, meaning that mankind doesn't have to do anything to keep it going. They don't have to be fruitful and multiply to keep it going. Um, they don't have to even uphold life like he told them to. They ought to. They would find that life would be better if they would do things that way. But God's covenant, God's promise is, is unconditional. It's not based on anything that they themselves do. It's comprehensive. Uh, it's, it's universal, if you will. Not only is this for Noah, did you notice? It's for every living thing on the earth. Because in the flood, was not every living thing on the earth destroyed except that which was in the ark? I mean, the animals, being able to hear God say this to Noah and to his sons and to all the living creatures, you know, woo, you know, whatever animal sounds they're going to make. You know, like enjoy praising the Lord in that moment, rejoicing that God has made this covenant and this, this promise to them that they don't have to go and spend a year on the ark with Noah anymore, that they don't have to stay close to the ark and protect themselves, uh, that they ought to uh, be able to enjoy this promise as well. It was universal uh, for, for everyone, for everything. It was everlasting. Uh, it was one that would go on forever and ever. This wasn't something that would last just during Noah's lifetime. This wasn't just a promise to Noah and, and the, the next couple, 300 years that he would live on the earth. This was something that would be for Noah, for his children, for their children, and on and on forever and ever. Interestingly, uh, you, you may know that many other cultures retell this story in their own form or fashion. Other flood narratives, other flood stories. Um, many other different cultures ha retell this story. But none of those other cultures ever have a story of God going back on his word. Another flood another destruction. They all retell this story, but the fact that they don't have another flood story is proof that even in those other cultures, God is being faithful to this promise and to this, this covenant. But not only is it, is it everlasting, it's, it's undeserving. It's undeserving. Yes, Noah is described as receiving favor from the Lord. Yes, Noah is described as being righteous and blameless in the Lord's sight. Uh, yes, Noah is described as having walked with God, which seems to be different from 
everyone else on the earth in that day. But as we're going to see next week, one verse later, Noah is undeserving of this kind of covenant. Noah is undeserving of this kind of promise of protection in the future and salvation. It's unilateral, unconditional, universal, everlasting, and undeserving uh, for them. And for us who live thousands of years after that, those things are true to this very day. Uh, we don't have to build big ships to be able to float uh, on, the, on the ocean for fear of rain. We don't have to build tall towers as they'll do later on in Genesis to try to get away from the flood. Uh, we can rest assured, especially as God's people who know God's word, that that'll never happen again. The, this promise is for, for us as well. But not only did he promise it, he gave them a sign. A sign. God was blessing his people by providing for life. In 1 through 7, he blessed them by establishment of a covenant in 8 through 11. But he also blesses them with assurance in a sign in 12 through 17. Assurance of a sign. Because I think God knew how forgetful mankind was and how distracting and blinding sin really is. And so he, he gives them a sign in verse 12. Again, and God said, like Genesis chapter 1, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds, when who brings clouds? When God brings clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, God says, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God, in this moment, gave Noah and his family assurance in a sign. But did you notice that it wasn't just for Noah? Did you notice who else this sign was for? Uh, yeah, it was for all living creatures. And, and I, I, again, I wonder if the animals are looking up and they see the, the rainbow, you know, and, and know and understand, but... But it was even for someone other than that. Look in verse 15. Let's go back to 14. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, who will remember my covenant? God says, I will remember my covenant. 
the rainbow set in the clouds after rain, when the sun shines through each and every one of those teeny tiny little droplets of water floating in the sky and reflects and refracts back the light in that beautiful array of colors. When we see that, we remember the promise, but when God sees that from above, he sees, he remembers as well. And it's not, like I said last week, when the Bible says God remembers, it's not as if he has forgotten. And it's rainy down here in Dallas, and the sun pops through the clouds, and we see the rainbow, and we remember, and God happens to kind of glance that direction towards Dallas and sees the rainbow, like, ah, forgot, got to turn off the timer on the rain clouds, you know, like, I forgot, we got to make sure it doesn't keep going. If I would have left the, the hose on, then my goodness, you know, what would have happened down there? It's not as if the Lord forgot. When the Bible says that God remembers, it, it means that he's drawing towards and acting on behalf of that person that he's remembering. And so when, when you see the rainbow, one of the things it should mean for you is that the Lord is drawing near in that moment and acting on your behalf, going to put a stop to the rain eventually, even if it rains for a month and seems to rain days on days on end and seems like it's never going to go and the lakes are filling to their brim and this, that, or the other. You sit back and say, I mean, it's only going to go so far. There's a rainbow there. The Lord will remember. The Lord will remember. The sign of the rainbow is, is for us, uh, but it's also for them. Uh, man, this is, this is important. Again, put yourself in Noah's shoes and consider. Uh, it seems as if in the language of the flood that there hadn't been rain up to that point and that the, the grounds were watered by springs uh, in the ground. And so when the rains came upon the earth, it seems as if, according to the narrative, that that was the first time that rain clouds came. So in Noah's mind, rain clouds equal destruction of the world. Can you imagine the next time a rain cloud would have come over them, all of a sudden he flashes back to that moment, oh my goodness, do you remember what happened in that day? But when he sees uh, he remembers the promise, and in the midst of the rain, as the rain begins to end, he sees the rainbow, and he remembers the promise of the Lord. It's not going to, rain clouds are not going to be seen as, as a sign of destruction anymore. In fact, they're going to be seen as a provision for life in the future. They're not going to be used to destroy, they're going to be used to water and nourish and care for. Uh, to provide for, for the people in the future. And so what a, what a blessing. <laughs> what a, when chapter 9 opens with God blessing Noah, just think about the blessing that Noah received in that. And so we, we hear that kind of a story, and, and we think that's, that's great. You know, I, I see the Lord's provided for life, and I know it's not going to flood. I know the flood rains won't. So how, Brian, how's that going to help me 
this week. Am I just to be encouraged that we're not going to be destroyed in a flood this week? Is that, is that what this passage is for? Is that, or is there more to it than that? Is there there's something more that, that the Bible has for us in understanding what, what this means for us? So I think, there's, I think there's more. This is the first covenant that we see established by God in the Bible. There's many more that come. Uh, even shortly after that, there's, this is the Noahic covenant. There's the Abrahamic covenant. Um, there's the Davidic covenant. But al- along the way, there ends up becoming a new covenant. And the new covenant uh, fulfills all the old covenants and even makes them uh, even more full in, in, in another sense, uh, makes them even better. And this new, co- if, if this covenant uh, was unilateral, unconditional, universal, unending, and undeserving, uh, this new covenant is even more so unilateral, unconditional, universal, unending, undeserving. Um, we see the new covenant mentioned in a couple different places, even before it's even established. So you could look or note down Jeremiah chapter 31, in verse 31, the Lord says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and listen, and they shall be my people. This is the the better new covenant, the better new promise of God. The the promise of Genesis 9 uh, is a yes and amen. Praise the Lord, give thanks to God. We don't have to fear death in a flood any longer. There's a better covenant, a new covenant that 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 old covenant in Genesis nine is is preparing us for and, and getting us getting us ready for. Because if Noah needed to be saved from the flood, um, and he was in the ark in the midst of that flood. Noah was eventually going to die 300 years later. He needed to be saved from another judgment. Not just a temporal judgment here on this earth, but an eternal judgment. And because Noah faced that judgment uh, and needed to be saved from that moment as well, and not only Noah, but his children and their children and on and on and on, we too need to be saved. We too. And that's why God promised 
this covenant. He, he established this covenant even before it came to fruition. That was Jeremiah 31, 31, but you could read about it in Ezekiel 36, in verse 26 and 27 as well, where he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is something that all of mankind is, is longing for because we're, we're all going to face death just like Noah. And we all need to be able to consider what happens in eternity, what happens after we die here on this earth. It's one thing to know that we won't be killed on this earth from a flood. It's another thing to know that we could be saved from the judgment in the end. And there is this promise, even in the Old Testament, to God's people back then, that God would be their God and he, they would be his people, and that he would give them this new heart, and this new spirit within them. We read in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, who is this guarantor of a better covenant uh, in Hebrews seven twenty two, but also in Hebrews chapter eight verse six it says, "But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises." The promise to Noah was the first of many promises of God, but they are just getting better as they go, getting to the point of this new covenant that was going to be able to save, not just from life here on this earth, but save for eternity. And Jesus is the one who eventually came and was the enactor, was the guarantor, what uh, was was the one who was the very covenant himself. I want us to, to look at this for a second and, and see this in one, one other place that will help us tie this to our passage. And that's in Isaiah chapter 42. In Isaiah 42, and we'll be there in a couple chapters after that where this, these days of Noah are, are mentioned. But there in Isaiah 42, verse 1, in all of Isaiah, we see these sections where Isaiah and the Lord write about this suffering servant who, who we know to be Jesus, who is going to come and to, to give his life to serve for the sake of others. And in verse, chapter 42, verse 1, the Lord says, Behold, my servant, my servant, that is the, the coming Messiah, the one who will come and fulfill those promises of Jeremiah, those promises of Ezekiel, these promises in Isaiah. My servant, God says, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard, in the street. Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come 
and to bring forth justice, not just for Noah, but for the nations, for all humanity. Again, you think about the universal aspect of this new covenant. It's not just for one ethnicity. It's not just for one group of people. It's for all people of all times and all backgrounds. And that's what Jesus came to establish. Fast forward, look ahead in in, uh, verse 6. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. What does Jesus call himself in John chapter 8, verse 12? I am the light of the world. Jesus is this light, this new covenant for the hope of the world. To open the eyes of the blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Essentially, the old covenants have come to pass. I have fulfilled them. I've made good on my word and my promises. The old things, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Do you know why the Bible says he makes promises before they actually happen? So when they actually happen, you believe. You believe that that he is God and that he will do what he said. Well, let's jump ahead just a bit to Isaiah chapter 52. This is probably the most famous servant song of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, if you spent some time reading through uh, the language of Isaiah 52 and 53, what you would read is a, a picture of the death and resurrection of the coming Messiah. In fact, this passage is so graphic that it's not read in Uh, Jewish synagogues any longer. Because if a a Jew who would consider these things with any intentionality read these things, they would have to apply them to the Messiah and see that these very things happened to Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the Messiah. But I want to bring your attention to uh, a specific verse in Isaiah 53, verse 10, where after it describes the, the death uh, of the Messiah, in verse 10 it says, Yet it, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The amazing thing about the gospel is that the very sign of the death of our Savior is the very sign of life for those who believe in him. And this passage tells us that not only did Jesus come to fulfill this and die, 
for the salvation of all mankind. But God prolonged his days. This is why we talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Not just the death. Jesus died for the sins of all, but he rose to life, providing life for us. Think about it. Just like God saved Noah through the ark, God saves mankind through the cross. But just like God provided life for Noah after the ark, God provides life for us after our salvation in the resurrection. Not only does God do that, he, he builds a covenant around it. And so God doesn't just bless Noah with provision for life. He blesses you with provision for life. Not just life on this earth, but provision for eternal life in sending his one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for you and to make a way for you to enjoy eternal life. He not only provides and blesses Noah uh, with establishment of a covenant to not destroy the earth in a flood, he establishes a new and better covenant with any of you who would believe that you would be able to enjoy eternal life forever with him. He not only uh, blesses Noah and his sons by giving them a sign of assurance in the rainbow that he wouldn't destroy the earth. He gives us a sign. He gives us a sign of assurance that our eternal life is secure. And it's called the empty tomb. It's called the empty tomb, which is why in Isaiah chapter 54, just after that beautiful declaration of the death and resurrection of Jesus in verse 7, God says, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. Essentially, God deserted them for a moment because of their sin. But he says, I'll have compassion. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Listen, this is like the days of Noah to me. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no, long, should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. You see how the rainbow points us forward to a better covenant. That just as God swore not to allow the waters to flood the earth and destroy the earth again, God is saying, this is just like the, the days of Noah to me. You're in your sin. You're in, you, you deserve death. But I've sent my one and only son to save you, to die for you, to rise for you. The empty tomb is your new rainbow, essentially, your better rainbow, that God won't destroy you in the judgment that is to come. Because as we've seen the past few weeks, I've quoted it from the letters of Peter, there won't be another flood of judgment, but there will be a fire of judgment. 
And the empty tomb is the sign of assurance that by repentance of sins and faith in Jesus, the establisher and enactor of the better covenant, you'll make it through the fire. You'll make it through the judgment that, that is to come. And in fact, he says to all of those who have repented and believed that they are to show, that they're to display, that they're to make a sign uh, of their own faith and baptism that is also referenced to the waters uh, of judgment. That when you have repented and believed and been saved and you display that in baptism, it's saying that you, it's like you were under the waters of judgment like the flood. And yet, through repentance and faith, you've been raised to walk in newness of life because Jesus died and he rose from the dead. And you have great assurance in that, Christian, because the tomb is still empty. And the tomb, the empty tomb, the resurrection is the better rainbow for those of us who have this new covenant as our covenant. And so be encouraged, Christian, that whatever sin you may find yourselves in, you can repent again, believe again, and hold fast to the promise of the Lord. His promises are good and they are lasting. But if you find yourself here this morning with no guarantee that you have done enough good to be able to earn eternal life with God in the end. Uh, hear this. Hear Jesus' very words when he came to establish the new covenant and to fulfill it. He said, repent and believe. Believe in the promise and the covenant, not in your own way. Believe in the, the unilateral, unconditional, universal, unending covenant that was established in Jesus Christ. Put your faith and trust in him and no one else and be saved. Now let us uh, remember this month uh, when we see a rainbow in the rain, when we see that image elsewhere, let us remember that God has drawn near to us in Jesus Christ and has acted on our behalf for our salvation. And let us give him thanks. Let us give him praise. And let us declare this truth to those who need to know it most. Let's pray.